All right, I got a, um, I've got a number of passages this morning. I, I got lots, lots of Bible this morning, um, and I'm going to read it. I would love you to try and tune in during the reading of Scripture rather than tune out kind of thing. Because sometimes, you know, when you're reading a long passage, it's like, oh, yeah, we've heard that before. Tune in. Cause the, and the passages I've chosen, they kind of speak for themselves. So, um, and the theme is love, so there won't be any surprises. But um, let, me, let me read a number of passages this morning. Matthew 5. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, or be whole, be holy, be wholesome. We we unpack we unpack all of that in the Sermon on the Mount. But that's the idea of be perfect, be whole, be holy, be wholesome. Love your enemies. Matthew chapter twenty-two. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and the Pharisees got together. Oh, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question: Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Or all of the law and the prophets are summed up in these two commandments. Or revolve around these two commandments. John chapter 13 verse 34 to 35. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so that so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. John 15. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. My command is, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant knows not his master's business. Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you so that you might go and bear fruit That will last. And whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. 1 John 4.16 And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. And God in them. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. As we focus on this theme that is love, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us in the place and the situation and the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. We thank you that you are love, infinite loving kindness extended towards us. Help us to be those that would extend that same kind of love to the world around us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. 
So my theme this morning is love. If you didn't pick that up, it is love. Dave prayed half my sermon in the prayer, so that was awesome. What a fluke. So there you go. Those things happen from time to time. That, yeah, all right, okay. Uh, Theme is love. To be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, is to be a person who's characterized by love of God and love of neighbor. That's been the defining mark of, well, that's supposed to have been uh, the defining mark of what it is to be a Christian for 2,000 years. Love of God and love of neighbor. To sum it all up, Christians feel they love God and love their neighbors. Love God and love their enemy even. Love God and love their brothers and sisters. Love is this central, central characteristic. Central. Love is a central characteristic of being a Christian. It's just for the couples out there. Uh, Love is a central characteristic of what it is to be a Christian. Love of God, love of neighbor, love of one's brothers and sisters, love of Christ and love of enemy. It's the thing that's marked Christians for 2,000 years. We're to be people of faith, hope and love. Faith that's anchored in Christ. Hope that's anchored in Christ. Love that's anchored in Christ. Yet the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. Really, none of the passages I've just read sit in the hard-to-preach passages or hard-to-get-your-head-around passages. Uh, a few people on Facebook a couple of weeks ago were making suggestions. Um, you know, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Yeah, that's one of those tricky passages. Even the whole plagues thing is one of those tricky passages. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira. I'm still not settled on the whole Ananias and Sapphira story. I've looked at it from different angles, but I'm not ready to preach that yet. I don't know quite what's... There's some stuff going on there, but I can't quite... That's a harder passage. Um, These passages, though, love God, love your neighbor, love your brothers and sisters, love your enemy. It's like... Can you unpack that in the Greek? It's like, in, in the Greek, it's the same. Just love God, love your neighbor, love your brothers and sisters, love your enemy. These are, these are the easy ones to understand, but probably the hard ones to live at times. There's nothing tricky happening. There's nothing, if you go back to the first century context and really unpack what's happening, no, no, your neighbor is the people that live next door and the people that are different to you and not like you. And your brothers and sisters are the people that are in church with you and the ones that are in other churches that are different for you and your enemies are the people that are antagonistic. Yep, that's, uh, it's, it's, that, that's what it is. Love all of those people. Reasonably straightforward but hard to live. And I think the noise of our 21st century life makes it difficult as well. Now, don't get me wrong, the challenges of first century life make it difficult too. You know, love the guy that's making you go into the arena and get eaten by a lion. You know, that's challenging. Like, I've got to be honest, that's, that's challenging. There's some difficulties inherent in that. Uh, maybe your wife gets taken and eaten by the lion. You've still got to love the guy that, you know, I'm noticing some complexities in that scenario. Um, but there's complexities in a 21st century context as well. Uh, I think it's fair to say we live in a world and a society that's becoming ever more fractured and fragmented. Uh, We live in a social context that is incredibly polarised and incredibly polarising at the the same time. Uh, And there's lots of reasons for this. There's there's lots of reasons in my sermon this morning is not really to unpack what maybe some of those reasons are. Not the least, though, one of them being the postmodern disintegration of a meta-narrative or the idea of a meta-narrative or a grand narrative. that That there might be some sort of overarching story 
by which we can make sense of our lives and what it is to be human, what it is to relate to one another as, as the world kind of thing. You know, not the least the disintegration of, of that idea. Uh, these stories that make sense of the world and bring people together. Uh, any sense of a big framing story is supposedly in the service of power and an institution and our world regards them with suspicion or dismisses them altogether. So, you know, for example, the, the Christian narrative, Genesis through to Revelation, is this meta-narrative, is this overarching story. It's this big story of Israel, of course, and then the church and Christ and all that, but it, it's this summing up of history that somehow frames, from a Christian perspective, how we should kind of live life. But all sorts of, there's numerous meta-narratives, but there's suspicion of all of them. Are they just in the service of power and institutes. So they kind of disintegrate a little bit. Uh, in a positive sense, this has rightly given profile to marginalized voices to tell their story within the mainstream story. That's a good thing. Uh, to challenge what at times is considered to be the mainstream story when actually there's, there's other stories and other perspectives and other experiences of this going on. And that's a positive thing and a good thing. Uh, I don't think you can argue against that. Storytelling. The sharing of stories, the cross-pollination of perspectives and ideas, give and take, Q&A, collaboration, pushback, uh, in a spirit of generosity and kindness and openness with a careful attention to history and data and uh, measured outcomes and so on and so on. Well, that should be life-giving. That, that should be the milieu of ideas that kind of come together in a, like I said, though, in a spirit of generosity and kindness that kind of goes back and forth and wrestles with those things and looks to shed light rather than create more darkness kind of thing. Uh, you know, that should be life-giving. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: as an iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And yet the experience of that is not often the case or not always like that at all. All too often it doesn't go like that. Uh, lacking emotional intelligence, lacking emotional intelligence, lacking a desire for mutual benefit and collaboration, uh, lacking the ability to converse in kind of a nuanced manner. You know, that, that, that's a real key to be able to use nuance in your ideas and these kind of things. Well, lacking all of that, though, people tend to entrench themselves in ideologies and then defend them come hell or high water. And that can make things tricky. Uh, or if not an ideology, people tend to entrench themselves in their own personal narrative, their own story. And we have for the, you know, in the, only in the last 10 years, we have the idea or the little phrase, oh, that's my truth. That's my truth. That's, a, like, that's maybe only 10 years old kind of thing. That's not, that idea is not 100 years old or 2,000 years old kind of thing. Oh, that's my truth. And so I'm just going to kind of live that. That's a very new thing. Uh, and woe to anyone who suggests that your individual narrative may not be the whole story may not encompass the whole picture. Um, you may not understand your individual narrative with clarity that you think you understand your own story. Um, you may not have all of the puzzle pieces that are needed to kind of paint the picture. Uh, I forgot to, oh, I didn't forget, I didn't think of it, doing it, but the old Jahari window where what you know and everyone else knows, and then what um, you don't know, but everyone else knows about yourself. That's actually a thing. There's things you don't know about yourself that all the people around you know about you kind of thing. Uh, and then there's things that you don't know and that others don't know, but God knows about you kind of thing. And, you know, there's, oh, fancy that. Well, if you've been even just a little bit self-reflective over the last three or four years, you will have discovered things now that I didn't know about that 10 years ago. I didn't know about that. But I, I tell people... For me, you know, if I had to go on Mastermind when I was like 21 or 22, like they the Mastermind, that, yeah, you know, the, the quiz and all the... Pick the topic that you know the most about. 
Well, when I was 21 or 22, I would have I been picked NRL, or I would have picked, um, oh, give me Bible and theology. I'll do Bible and theology. That's the thing I know the most. I know heaps about that. Line me up. And I would have gone, that would have been what I chose for mastermind. Having done a diploma, a master's degree, and a doctorate, I now look back on my 21-year-old self and go, never go on mastermind and never choose that as a topic because you know nothing about that. Uh, And yet at the time, of all of the topics in the world that I was convinced that I knew a lot about, it would have been that one. I probably did know a lot about it, but in hindsight, it's like, there were some things you didn't know. And there'll be much to learn over the next 40 years as well. We may not have the whole picture yet. That's my truth. That's my story. So we end up with a disintegration of overarching stories that unite us and install hope and courage, uh, not the least the biblical narrative kind of as a framing story. All of that just to say we live in a fractured, fragmented, polarized, polarizing world of discord and enmity. I love that word, enmity. Uh, enmity is a great word. Last week's word was stymied, which is prevented or hindered in making progress. That was a great word for last Sunday, stymied. Uh, This week's word is enmity. And that's just for the people here that need a new word every week because we cater for everybody. Enmity, it means the state, the state or just the feeling. It's the actual state or maybe just the feeling of active opposition or hostility. Well, we live in a world of discord and enmity. The state or maybe just the feeling of active opposition or hostility. I think it's fair to say our cultural climate is one of discord and enmity. Uh, Not simply that we have a plurality of ideas, but we so often have a plurality of ideas that are in conflict with one another. Now, sometimes those ideas are in conflict with one another because they they don't fit together. They they are genuinely an idea that doesn't work with the idea. So that, that happens at times. But sometimes the conflict is just two people with different ideas in conflict with each other, uh, irrespective really of the ideas when you kind of you boil it down a little bit. So there's the sense that we feel like we need to fight for our ideas and fight against other people's in regard to their ideas. Cultural climate of discord and enmity. I think sadly this is creeping into the church. Uh, it's creeping into the Christian community. And my sermon this morning is just to say that this isn't right. It isn't the way that it should be. It isn't healthy. It isn't life-giving. It doesn't mark us as Christian. Discord and enmity doesn't mark us as Christians. If anything, uh, to put it bluntly, ultimately it's the spirit of antichrist. It's an antichrist way to live if it's living in discord and enmity and conflict with brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm not talking about not having different opinions within the church. That's totally fine. Of course, we should have a church full of different opinions. And I was joking at the start, but the full spectrum of people will have voted for all sorts of different parties. Of course, that's as it should be. But I'm talking about the way that we, in which folk hold on to different opinions in a way that ends up trumping the story of Jesus Christ. Uh, and as a result, causes people to break fellowship with one another. It isn't right. On the, on the left, this is the way that it should be. We come to the Lord's table. We gather around the Lord's table as sinners and saints. As red and blue. That's not the matrix, but that's right. Uh, as pro-vax and anti-vax people, we come and we gather around this table. As lager drinkers and craft beer drinkers. 
Um, that one was borderline. I was like, you could probably have decent conflict over that. Lagers are, lagers don't count. But uh, as people that have fallen monarchy and people that would like to leave and become a republic, as Star Wars and Star Trek people, we gather around the Lord's table. As protesters and as and consenters, we gather around the table. Or another way of saying it is it's the, the, the table of the Lord, our Christian convictions, our Christian faith, our love for God, for neighbor, for brothers and sisters, for enemy, that brings us to this table way before any of that other stuff. In fact, not even before that other stuff. It trumps that other stuff. It, it's not a hierarchy. This is how it should not be. This is not, this is not how it's supposed to be. Where we need to work out who are the sinners and who are the saints because we want to be in the right section. or Who's red or, or blue or Provax or anti or like, you know, etc, etc. And once we've figured all that out and we've got the right people, then we'll be able to gather at the table. That is Antichrist. That is not the way that it is meant to be. It's the table. The body of... Christ broken, the blood of Christ shed, the love of Christ extended towards us. That trumps over all of these things. I'm not suggesting any of these things are not important. I'm just saying that the thing that marks us is not opinions on those things, but our faith in Jesus Christ that brings us together. That's the antithesis of the table of the Lord, and it isn't right. All right, Galatians 5. This is the last sermon that we did in our series, or the last passage in our Series on Galatians. I've crossed out some of the obvious things in order to focus on the things that we sometimes overlook. I've crossed out sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery and idolatry and witchcraft and fits of rage and selfish ambition. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. So that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. And I've crossed a bunch out so that we don't need to think about them this today. Because they're the ones that always get taught on or thought about or, cont- or, or contemplate. I've, I've highlighted the ones that we often overlook. It's in the Bible, it's here. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Hatred, discord, dissensions, factions, and the like. Hatred, discord, dissensions, factions, and the like. That feels timely for this social context, this cultural climate that we find ourselves living in. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's, human, uh, God's plan for human flourishing. That we dwell together in love. That we would be wholesome, whole, and holy. Well, if you're living in hatred, discord, dissensions, factions, you're not going to step into that flourishing way of human life that God calls us to be. You're not going to know what it is to be holy, whole, and wholesome. There's going to be stuff in the mix there that... that uh, pollutes or or infects or, or upsets the whole the whole thing. It's like when we live with unforgiveness. Well the unforgiveness so what is forgiveness? Forgiveness ultimately is to absorb the offense. Really forgiveness that's the best way I can describe it is to absorb the offense. To take it within and to let it dissipate down to nothing in, in order to 
stop cycles of reciprocal violence. Because we don't forgive. They did that to me, I'll do that to them, but I'll grab my mates and we'll do it. And then they'll grab their village and then I'll grab the whole town. And that was the whole cycles of violence throughout the Bible. Forgiveness is to absorb the offense and to allow it to dissipate so that there's no longer, there's no longer the need to, well, you killed my mum, I'm going to kill your whole family kind of thing. It, it, it stops that. But we, don't, we, we have to absorb it. That's what Christ does. Christ takes our sin upon the cross and absorbs it. But not in a manner that creates infection. It's, it absorbs it and allows the spirit to let it dissipate and fade to nothing. Sometimes with forgiveness, people forgive in the sense that they absorb it, but all they're really done is doing is being quiet about it. But they're carrying it around on the inside. Well, that, that's not what I mean by absorbing it. Carrying it around on the inside will ultimately be a rock that, that trips you up and, and, and causes infection and, and causes you not to flourish. Well, hatred and discord and dissensions and factions, they don't lead to a flourishing life, to a holy, whole and wholesome life. Have you won an argument recently? I don't mean like with an actual person. I just mean with the person while you're lying on your bed at night thinking about them. <laughs> have you won that argument? Did you just... Ooh, did you have all of the right things to say? And what it leads to is not sleeping well. It doesn't lead to a flourishing life. It doesn't lead to being holy, whole and wholesome. The body of Christ is supposed to be a community of unity in diversity. Diverse opinions, diverse ways of seeing the world, and yet there's unity within that diversity because we are united in Christ. We're united in the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the story of Christ, the faith, the hope, the love of Christ. Our our conviction that the Spirit leads us into love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and all these kinds. These are these things that bring us together. So we can have different political affiliations. That's fine. That's to be expected. But, but they don't, relationships don't fall apart on that or be built on that. The, the relationships are built on love and concern and mutual respect of one another in Christ. If though you hold your opinion in such a way that it's actually an ideology... That trumps relationship and love and unity as the body of Christ. That causes discord and dissensions and factions. Very likely your ideology has become an idolatry. Very likely you've camped in a particular position. And if it is trumping relationship and love and care and concern for God and neighbor and brothers and sisters and even enemy. Then very likely it's become an idolatry. Not a theology. Doesn't mean we can't hold those opinions or have those opinions, but how do we hold them? In what way do we hold them, communicate them, share them, live them? What, how, what comes first? It's not how it's supposed to be, and it doesn't lead to a flourishing life. It shouldn't be that folk can have years of shared history, years of shared history, of friendship and support, of gathering at the Lord's table together. Of standing alongside one another in worship. Of, of laying hands on one another. Of, of giving prayer and receiving prayer from one another. You, you shouldn't be able to have years of that in your life. But then it turns out that it can't survive a Trump presidency. Seriously. You, you shouldn't, we shouldn't be able to have 20 years of gathering at the table and praying for one another. But it can't survive a Trump presidency and all the opinions around that. 
Or it can't survive or navigate a flag referendum. It's not how it should be. Or government legislation. Or even a pandemic. I had 20 years of beautiful history with that person, but then the pandemic came along and lockdowns and the government just tore us apart. It's like, no, 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 no. Your own emotional intelligence and ability to walk with that person and priorities that you've got to, you've got to, they might not be helping that thing. It gives the complexities that you have to navigate. But you still, still own that. Shouldn't have 20 years of friendship and gathering at the table and worshipping alongside one another and praying for one another, but it can't survive a Facebook post. Or the season finale of The Bachelor. Or whatever it might be. Kind of when you put it like that, or at least, at least when I'm writing it, I hope you're receiving it like that. Oh, yeah, when you write it like that, 20 years of history couldn't survive Trump. It does make you go, don't think that, I don't think it should have been like that. I think I could have, I should have done something, I should have acted, I should have, that shouldn't have been like that. So what to do, what to do, what to do? Well, we should be very grateful that in 1992, Gary Chapman wrote the five love languages. So now we know what love is, and now we know how to express love to one another, to God and to our enemy. It's acts of service, giving gifts, physical touch, quality time, and words of affirmation. So let's stand to our feet. No. That's a good book, actually. It is a good book. I'll, I'll make Gary words of affirmation. Physical touch, etc., etc. I'm just kidding. That's awesome stuff. Uh, it's a helpful book. No, we go to 1 Corinthians 13. It's our descriptor of love. And we remember that God is love. Uh, I took Andrew and Inez's wedding the other day. We had a wonderful time taking the wedding. And I, I used the 1 Corinthians 13 verse at the wedding, not because that's my go-to verse to do at the wedding, uh, because it's a description of God's love. And then hopefully the kind of love that we can extend to one another. So remembering that God is love. If God is love, what's God like? Well, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, not words of affirmation never fail or gift giving or quality time or acts of service. Not that that never fails, but that kind of love that is not easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs and always hopes and believes, that, that doesn't fail. That, that, that can, you can navigate some storms with that kind of love. Whether there are prophecies, they'll cease. Whether there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. But now these three things remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. I've paraphrased it to flip it all into the positive. Looks something like this. I think we've got it. Yeah. God, God's heart, God's infinite loving kindness towards us is. What's God towards us? God is patient. God is kind. God is generous. God is humble. God's honoring. God's other focus. God is calm. Forgiving. Purposely forgetful. And you know Paul's, Paul's going through the Old Testament as he starts to paint this picture of what God's like. You know, his sins are thrown into the... I can only remember that verse from the Krusty Song version. Throwing our sins into the deepest part of God's, forgive, God's forgiveness seat. Well, there's a great big sign that says no fishing. If you don't know about that, that's alright. You're doing alright. But there's a few of us that will know about Krusty. 
What does God say? Now remember not your iniquities. As far as the east is from the west. Purposely forgetful. Purposely forgetful. Protective, honest, trusting, hopeful, ever persevering. Oh, the joy that this is the love that God is, the, the, the love that God has for us, the disposition of God towards us. Oh, the joy that I might be able to extend that kind of love to Lisa in our marriage, to our family, to my friends, to the church community, to the world around me, that I could be that to them. Oh, the joy when I fail to do that, that others might extend that kind of love back to me. Well, that, that's the kind of love that never fails. When I fail to give that kind of love, well, Lisa gives that love back to me. Well, that love never fails. That's the kind of love that we need to become the kind of people that God's called us to be. You need spouses or friends or family members that are purposely forgetful. I mean, the contrast is diligently remembers everything. We know that we, I think we all know, purposely forgetful is a lot healthier than diligently remembers everything. It's like, how many, how many guys want a wife that diligently remembers anything? It's like, no, that's not a, it's really not a quality I'm looking for. Purposely forgetful, though. Oh, thanks, babe. But, but that's what I need to be. That's what we need to be to each other. Other focus, calm. Protective, honest, trusting, ever persevering. Patient, kind, generous. It's like, whoa. If I can be that to the world around me, the world's a better place. And when I can't quite manage to do that, if others could be that to me in that moment, Oh, how that draws the best out of me and causes me to want to step up and be that. Well, what would it be if we were to live that kind of love to one another? Well, that would be what it is to be the body of Christ. That would be the kingdom of God. That would be human flourishing. That would be what it is to live a holy, whole and wholesome kind of life. That would be the church as a place of faith, hope and love. St. Luke's, we are St. Luke's. May we be the kind of people that offer that love to one another. A long time before we offer opinions or ideologies. May it be that that we offer to one another when we gather on a Sunday. Not that we can't have opinions or ideologies, but it, it is, it's love that we would bring for each other as our gift. Joe put songs together this morning. Dave thought about MC and I've written a sermon. That's the gift that I bring to us. We sing and worship together. We bring what we need to bring for each other on Sunday is love. Not an opinion and an ideology. Church is a sanctuary. Doesn't mean necessarily that it's an apolitical space. Doesn't necessarily mean that. That's complicated. There's some it's wisdom that's needed around that. Doesn't necessarily mean that. But the church is a sanctuary in the cultural climate of the world that we live in. 
And so if the world that we live in is one of animosity and discord and enmity, well, the church needs to be a sanctuary, a safe place, a place of peace and calm where you can, a refuge from that. And we need to be that to one another. Not that St. Luke's would be a bubble. I'm not talking about that. Generally speaking, oh yeah, bubble. We've got different language for bubble as well. Hundred bubble this morning. No, not, not what I mean by that. Not that we'd be a, an island or some sort of like... The last thing we need is churches that are disengaged from what's happening in the world. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I mean, generally you preach sermons with the Bible in one hand and the paper in the other. Like that, that's, how, that's the general rule of thumb. Otherwise, you're talking, but it's not relating to what's happening in life. But we've got to do that with wisdom. And I've got to do that with wisdom. I, I won't always get that right. But if you can, in those moments, extend that love back to me, we'll, we'll, we'll be okay. We'll, we'll kind of get there. Love of God, love of neighbor, love of our brothers and sisters, love of enemy even. That as 21st Christian, century Christians, we'd be marked by the same things that marked the first century Christians. All right, let's stand for communion together this morning, this gathering at the table. Um, all right, I got one more passage. This one's a bit trickier. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When you open the Bible and I highlighted it, hatred and discord and enmity and division and factions kind of thing. That's the reminder. It's like, I'm not making stuff up. Like, this is, this is what it is to be Christian. There's some stuff here about gathering at the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11. Um, oh, already Paul has like told them off. He's told that, that, that he tells them off for not discerning correctly the body of Christ. What he means by that is not... You're gathering at the Lord's table and not thinking about Jesus on the cross and gave his life for you. Not, you're not thinking about the body of Christ. No, he's referring to the body of Christ as the church community. And what was happening in Corinth was communion was, communion was better than that. Communion was a meal, a love feast. You'd gather for a meal together. And what was happening was well-to-do folk were arriving a lot earlier than some folk that were less well-to-do and eating all the food and drinking all the drink. And then when others gathered... There was nothing left over, just tiny bits and offcuts and the worst. He's like, you're not, you're gathering together, but you're not discerning properly the body of Christ. And he rebukes them, he tells them off. You're not thinking of others. You're, just, you're trying to arrive at church first so that you get it. It's the very opposite of how it is today. You're trying to get to church first so that you can polish off morning tea before anyone else gets there. Kind of like that, paraphrase. First Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On that night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this and remember. The passage goes back and forth between the imagery of the church gathered together, the imagery of Christ's body broken. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. The unworthy manner is the disregard for your fellow brothers and sisters. For those who drink and eat without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why so many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen to sleep. 
But if we are more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. So that's a trickier passage. That's a trickier passage than those, those other ones. So there's a failure to properly discern love and care and concern for brothers and sisters. And as a result of that, you're weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. So we could, you know, we could go right out to some sort of judgment from God. But we could go the other way as well, or it's and both, either or, mixture of the two. And go, well, what are they doing? They're failing to care for one another. They're looking out for themselves. There's so much selfishness going on within you. So much looking out for number one and no one else. So focused on your own life, your own opinion, your own values, your own getting there on time to get a good feed before anyone else. Well, that betrays a kind of bitterness, a kind of selfishness, a kind of brokenness on the inside well any kind of brokenness is going to, it's going to result in a sickness it's going to result in a in an illness it's going to result in not being the healthy person that you're called to be people to be heartbroken is a real thing like to be heartbroken is a real thing a relationship breaks up and somebody's body falls apart it's it's a real thing you can't pull these things apart it's a real thing that happens so there's somehow the lack of discernment, the lack of care for one another is creating a selfishness that's ultimately unhealthy. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for some have passed away or it's a euphemism for if you've just, you just switched off. You're not living the Christian life. You might as well lie down at the back of church and then leave early because like you're not participating. You're not actively engaged. You've missed the whole idea of what faith is and what's happening. So discern properly the body of Christ. Serious stuff. All to say that I invite all to the table this morning. Don't feel like you can't take communion this morning. But the question is, hey, who are the people in my world that maybe I need to reach out to? Maybe I need to extend some love to? Maybe I need to be purposely forgetful in relation to? Maybe there's, I've been sowing harm and discord and actually need to sow some peace and some love and some kindness. As you take communion this morning, my encouragement is to have a think about that. You can write those kinds of relationships that we would be known by our love for one another. I'm not talking about just people in the room. I'm talking about in the wider worlds that we live. Brothers and sisters here and there and everywhere. So we gather at the table, not of the church, but that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Table here at the front, one down the back. Made ready for those that love the Lord a little and for those that would like to love him more. All are invited to take a seat at the table, the certain, the uncertain, the faith-filled, and the doubters. Come not because of your own goodness, but come because of the goodness of God. Those that have followed faithfully and those that have tried but failed, there's space for everyone at the table. Come to the table of Lord, the tree of life rediscovered in the cross of Christ. Come meet the risen Christ. Come in. Eat from the tree of life. Turn your hearts towards Jesus and receive the salvation of God. For Jesus is the bread of life. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come to where heaven and earth overlap. The table of the Lord and receive the life of Christ as your own this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.